You know, uh, I, I don't know about you, but I think I do kind of know about you, but I, 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 I just don't like to wait. I don't like waiting in long lines. I don't like waiting in traffic. You know, that five whole seconds when the light changes from red to green and that car in front of you is still sitting there. I mean, ah, anybody? I mean, that bug anybody? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't like waiting for an important reply to a text message I just sent. I don't like waiting in a doctor's office. I hate waiting to hear the results of an MRI or an ultrasound that could literally change the direction of my life for the foreseeable future. And it's really hard to wait on God, like, like waiting on God to answer prayer, or waiting on God to help, or waiting on God to open a door, or close a door, or working on God in a particular way, or waiting on God to work out the next step. Waiting's hard, makes me irritated, makes me stressed, makes me anxious, makes me frustrated. What about you? How do you respond when you really want something so bad you can taste it? It's so close you can almost touch it. You might even believe that God wants you to have it, but there's an obstacle in the path and you're forced to wait. How does that make you feel? What do you do? And why does God make us wait? Well, the next exciting episode, episode, of, episode three in our st story of Ruth the Moabitess, can give us uh, much-needed insight on getting more comfortable in times when God forces us to wait. Ruth chapter three. So now, let me just catch you up. I, I, gotta, I love this story, and I gotta, t I gotta tell it and retell it, and I'm gonna try to throw in some things that we haven't really talked about. So I, I got to do the review because you see there was this famine in the land of Israel and this man named Elimelech was having a hard time making ends meet. So Elimelech and his family, his wife Naomi and her two sons, leave their home in Bethlehem because of the severity of the famine and they move to the land of Moab, which is the land of Israel's hated enemy. Now, Elimelech thought that they would only be there a short time, but they ended up staying there 10 years. And sadly, Elimelech dies in Moab, and now Naomi, his wife, is a widow, and she's trying to make ends meet. And she's raising two sons in a foreign country, unable to get back home because of this famine. Now, when their sons grow up, they marry Moabite women. Uh, Mahlon marries Oprah, or Kilion married Ruth, or it might be the other way around, we don't know. But then her two sons die. Now, Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons, and there's nothing worse than that kind of heartache. I mean, a husband you, you might can deal with because you say, well, he was up in years and he wasn't doing well, and that's hard, that's really hard. But losing two sons in the space of 10 years, I mean, this woman, Naomi, she's lost every man she ever cared anything about, she ever, ever loved. And there's nothing worse in that particular culture for a woman than losing all the men in your life. And she had no security. She was helpless and, and hopeless. But there was one bit of good news, and that is that the famine had ended back in, in Bethlehem, and Naomi decides to go back home to Bethlehem, and Ruth insists on going with her. And Ruth says, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And she says, Naomi, nothing but death will ever separate me from you. And so Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, go back to Bethlehem at the time of barley harvest, end of Act 1. Episode one. Then they arrive, when, when they arrive in the village, um, Naomi's old friends are shocked to, 
shocked to see her, and she makes this statement. She says, I went out full, and I came back empty. In other words, there was a famine in the land, and I lost everything. I was empty, but now I see I was full. You, you, you catch what I'm saying? Sidebar, sometimes you can be blessed but not know you're blessed or forget you're blessed. Like you go through a famine. You go through a hard time. And it seems like nothing else matters except getting out of the mess you're in. But at some point, you realize that the thing you're going through is not nearly as significant as the things that you have. You follow me? You understand what I'm talking about? When she left Bethlehem with her husband and two sons, she thought she was empty. Now she sees that she was full. In the midst of the famine, she still had her husband and two sons. Sometimes you can have something and not appreciate it until you lose it. And after she lost her husband and her sons, the famine seemed insignificant by comparison. And she really did go out full. Because she, and, 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 and actually she came back full because she had Ruth with her, but she didn't see it at the time, but she will later. Now, Naomi is seriously depressed. She feels like her life is over. She knows she doesn't have a second chance in life. She feels like God has forgotten her, forsaken her, and she's bitter and mad at God and blames him for all the bad stuff that's come into her life. And you understand, I'm not being hard on Naomi I mean, I think we can all identify with her heart, heartache and heartbreak, we, uh, but, but I'm just telling you the story. Now, Ruth knows they can't just sit around doing nothing, so she tells Naomi she's going to go out into the fields as they're being harvested to see if she can find a field that she can glean in, meaning she's going to go out and pick up leftover stark, stalks of barley left behind by the harvesters. Well, it just so happened that Ruth ends up in a field that belonged to a man named Boaz, who, it just so happens, he, he's a close relative of Elimelech, which is significant, as we're going to see in a minute. But Ruth doesn't know anything about that. Now, by the way, you do know nothing just happens, right? Nothing just happens. Now, I want, you to, I want to push rewind, and you're going to have to excuse, excuse me a minute because I'm going to preach, all right? Now, there was a reason Naomi's husband and two sons died at that time and in that place. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. God didn't fall asleep on the job and then the devil took control. No, God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's in complete control. He knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows how old you are. He knows what happened to you. He knows who walked out and left you. He knows who betrayed you. He knows who abused you. He knows who rejected you. He knows where you are in life. He knows about your bills. He knows about your career. He knows about the mess you're in at work. He knows you're single. He knows about your marriage. He knows about your loneliness. He knows your broken heart. He knows the health of your child, and he knows about your health. I'm not saying that God is the first cause of everything bad that happens to you, but I am saying nothing just happens because uh, Psalm 37, 23, King James says, the steps of a good man, good woman, are ordered by the Lord. In other words, if you hadn't gotten that phone call you got when you got it, if you hadn't made that turn you made yesterday, you wouldn't be experiencing what you're experiencing today. God has been behind the curtain of your life your whole life. You may have planned your steps, uh, your way, but God is directing your steps. 
And it's not that you're good, and it's not that you're so smart. It's not that you're so special. It's not that you're great. No, God has pulled you up. God has planted you where he wants you. God has pointed you in the right direction. And God has put his very own spirit inside you to lead you and guide you. I'm telling you, God knows who you are. He knows what you need. He knows what's coming. And he knows what field you need to be in and who you need to meet there. All right, yes, I'm sorry for preaching. But anyway, <laughs> nothing just happens. Say that with me out loud. Nothing just happens. Do you believe that? Nothing just happens. Now, as we saw last week, Ruth had no idea about how God was working and arranging things. She simply did the next thing that needed to be done to care for uh, Naomi. So she goes out to glean, and God puts her right where she needs to be. And it just so happens <laughs> that Boaz shows up at just the right time and notices Ruth hard at work, but, is, but, but he, he doesn't recognize her. He doesn't know who she is, so he asks his foreman about her, and he tells her that Ruth is that Moabite woman who's taking care of Naomi, and Boaz does know all about that because all the, all the town people know about that. And he's heard about how Ruth has left her own family and her own people back in Moab in order to care for Naomi, and he's very impressed with that, so he wants to help Ruth help Naomi. So he makes special provisions for Ruth to be safe and to be able to glean right behind his harvesters, and he tells his workers to purposely pull out stalks of grain and leave them on the ground for her to pick up. He lets Ruth drink water alongside his workers, and he feeds her uh, a supper of roasted grain, gives her more food than she can eat so she can take some home to Naomi. And as we saw last week, Boaz is demonstrating Yahweh's chesed love for Ruth which is showing love and care and compassion and mercy, which goes way beyond what anybody has the right to expect. Chesed is what Ruth shows to Naomi, and it's what Boaz shows to Ruth and Naomi. And so when Ruth walks in the door with supper already cooked and 30 pounds of barley in a sack, Naomi is shocked and excited. And for the first time in 10 years, she senses Yahweh's Chesed for her, and her whole demeanor changes from hopelessness to hope. That's where we left off last week, and as we come to episode three, Naomi wants to find long-term security for Ruth. Naomi knows she's not going to live forever, ever, and she's worried about that after she's gone, she's concerned about Ruth's future welfare. So if you're not there already, find your way in your Bible, paper, or digital, to Ruth chapter three, and we'll begin in verse one. Had a really neat thing happen this morning. There's two older people sitting down here from Catholic backgrounds. They've been coming for a couple months now, and they said, we brought our Bible to church today. And I said, I like paper Bibles. That's really good. So it was a big, thick Bible. And, uh, but that's okay. I told them, I said, if you know, you, the, the, the font size is gonna be bigger in a thick Bible, and you might like that. And they go, oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so... Verse one, one day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you'll be provided for us. Boaz is a close relative. Now, this isn't Redeemer. He's, 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 she's just saying he's a close relative of ours. And he's been very kind 
by letting you gather grain with his young women. So Naomi knows that Boaz is a close family member and she knows that he's capable of helping them get out of the poverty-stricken situation that she's in. Verse two, tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now that timestamp means that Ruth has been working in the fields, Boaz's field now for about two months and both the barley and the wheat harvest have come in. Now winnowing involves taking bundles of stalks of barley or wheat to a threshing floor, a flat, rocky floor, usually on the top of a hill. It was done in late afternoon, usually, when the evening breeze would be stronger. And they would spread out the stalks of grain on the floor, and oxen uh, would drag a weighted sledge, threshing sledge, over the stalks, crushing the grain, and then workers would beat the grain, separating the wheat from the chaff, and then they would take wooden pitchforks and they would toss the stalks into the air. They still do this today. And then the wind would blow away the stalks and the husks, and the grain would fall to the ground. And this was a time of great celebration, kind of a party atmosphere, because this is when the owner of the field finds out how much he's made on his harvest and his payday for his workers. And so the threshing floor would very often become a party place of eating and drinking and sometimes drunkenness and immorality. And Naomi has a plan, verse three. Now do as I tell you, take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. This is very misleading because the word nicest is not in the original Hebrew. And besides, it's hard to imagine that poverty-stricken Ruth would have nice clothes. Now what Naomi is saying is this. She says, clean yourself up, put on a little bit of midnight in Moab, and... She says, take off your widow's clothes, because she would have been still wearing her garments of mourning. Take off your widow's clothes and put on your regular clothes, and that would be a clue to Boaz that Ruth is no longer in a state of mourning and that she's available for marriage. Verse three, then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down and then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. And he will tell you what to do. <laughs> Wait a minute, what is going on here? I mean, I, I, th- th- this would not be something that we should emulate. Moms, right? Like this is not Naomi's guide to relationships and singleness. I'm I'm sure we would not use this model as a model for giving advice to our daughters on how to find husbands. I mean, this would be like, hey, hey, honey, I got an idea for you. You know, uh, go over to the men's dorm and go over when it's a a keg party night and then wait till late in the night when people are passed out drunk and or, or some of them are just laying around and they've fallen asleep on the floor and then go snuggle up next to someone's feet. Just take off their Birkenstocks, you know, or whatever. And just lay there until they tell you what to do. I mean, what is Naomi suggesting? Is she setting up an encounter for Ruth to seduce Boaz? I mean, to get him to do something intimately inappropriate? I mean, that's what some modern commentators suggest, and there's reason for them to think that maybe, because there are several words that Naomi uses here and that Ruth uses later that do have 
double meanings with sexual overtones, especially the bit about uncovering his feet. But that's not what's going on here. The, the, the storyteller has crafted this in a way that he's used words like this because it raises tension in the story. But that's not what's going on here. No, the, 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 first of all, no parent in their right mind would send their daughter out alone into a night of partying at the threshing floor unless, unless they were confident of a couple of things. Like Naomi is banking on what she knows about Boaz, that he's a man of godly character and no way, hopefully, no way would he take sexual advantage of Ruth. And second, she's banking on the fact that Boaz knows that Ruth is a, a woman of godly virtue, and she would in no way be propositioning him, and Naomi feels certain that Boaz would understand Ruth's intention as proposing marriage. But Naomi is doing this, she's setting this all up at night under the cover of darkness, so if Boaz doesn't want to take Ruth as his wife, he's free to say no without publicly humiliating Ruth. So from what we know of the character of Ruth and Boaz, as I read the story, there's no cause to read hanky-panky into this situation. It's just raising the tension like, ooh, what's gonna happen? All right, now, Naomi says, go spy out the situation. When Boaz is feeling good, notice where he lies down. I mean, you don't wanna do this with the wrong guy, for sure. And after you're sure he's asleep, uncover his feet. This is simple, uh, so that when his feet get cold in the middle, or it could be his legs, all right? Uh, word can mean different things. So when his feet and legs get cold in the middle of the night, he'll wake up and see you lying there, and then Naomi says, wait, and he'll tell you what to do. That's Naomi's plan, and it is a risky plan. It's risky. I mean, what if Boaz does misread uh, Ruth's intentions, and he just tells her to get lost and never come back? calls her names. Or what if Naomi and Ruth have misread Boaz and he takes advantage of Ruth and has his way with her and then tells her to get lost and never come back. I mean, th there's risk packed into this story for sure. Verse five, Ruth says, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Now, by the way, he's sleeping there on the threshing floor with his harvesters and his grain in order to protect his harvest from marauding bandits, which were common in the days of the judges. So Ruth goes quietly, uncovers his feet, and lays down. No way is she sleeping, right? You, you know this, right? Like she didn't just drift off to sleep. I mean, think about it from her point of view. She's a woman and she's coming to propose marriage to a man, which is absolutely unheard of back in the day. She's a Moabite, a foreigner. He's Israelite. She's young. He's older. She's poor. He's rich. In that culture, she brings absolutely nothing of value to the marriage. And worst of all, She's infertile. Oh yeah, Ruth is most definitely putting everything on the line here because it could all very easily blow up in her face. Verse eight, around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over and he was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. I would have loved to have seen the expression on his face. Who are you, he asked. He said, I'm, I'm Ruth, I'm your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me for you are my family redeemer. 
Now, Ruth is not saying spread the corner of your garment over me because I'm cold. And she's not propositioning Boaz. We've already covered that. She's proposing marriage. In the Hebrew, this is literally spread your wings over your servant because you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant because you're a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer. The Hebrew word is a goel. This is a different word than Naomi used when she just said he's a family, he's a relative member, a relative. Now, back in verse 12, we heard, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 12, we heard Boaz bless Ruth by praying, may the Lord repay you for what you've done and may you receive full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That phrase shows up six times in the book of Psalms. It shows up in Matthew when Jesus sits outside the city of Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed as a mother hen to take you under my wings. This is a feminine attribute of God, the mothering of God. He wants to bring his children in. So coming under the wings of Yahweh means to come under his protection, to come under his loving care, to come under his chesed. Ruth is saying, be the answer to that prayer you prayed for me. Take me under your wing as your wife. Now, notice Ruth is not following Naomi's instructions here. Remember, Naomi told Ruth, uncover his feet when he wakes up and sees you lying there, wait, and he'll tell you what to do. But Ruth takes the initiative. Naomi simply wants Ruth to propose marriage. Ruth proposes marriage with strings attached. Evidently, at some point, Naomi must have explained how the law of God made special provision for the wife of a dead husband to become the wife of her husband's brother, or a close family member, and then that person becomes responsible to keep her husband's land in the family and to raise up a son to carry on the family name, meaning Elimelech's name and Ruth's husband's name. Now, uh, actually there were two Mosaic laws that applied to Ruth's situation that never really show up together in the Old Testament, except right here. Ruth pulls these two laws and puts them together. First, you have the law, the kinsman redeemer law, the Goel law, and it required the nearest relative to purchase a man's land if he died or he was forced to sell the land because of poverty. And the idea was you want, we want to keep family land in the tribe. Then you had the Leveret Law, which required a blood brother of a man who dies without a male heir to marry his widow, and the firstborn of their union then takes the place of the dead, man's, uh, the dead man in the family tree, and that includes getting his inheritance. Listen, there is a whole lot more than romance going on here. Uh, I, I, much more than marriage. Much more than marriage. It, Ruth is very much concerned with family property and progeny. And Ruth's proposal moves the discussion 
uh, of the law from the letter to the Spirit. Boaz is neither the nearest relative, as we'll see, nor Elimelech's blood brother, so according to the letter of the law, he's not responsible. He's not responsible. She's asking him to follow the spirit of the law. And the fact is, the fact is, Ruth isn't just seeking a husband for herself. She's still committed to her vow to take care of Naomi. And in an act of uncompromising faith, infertile Ruth is hoping to marry Boaz and have a son that will carry on the family name, which most definitely would be a blessing to both Ruth and Naomi. Boaz understands what's going on. And he, uh, that, he understands what Ruth is doing for the family. And he's awestruck and he blesses her and praises her for her chesed. And he calls her a woman of valor. That is how the storyteller described Boaz at the beginning, that he was a noble man, a man of valor, a man of virtue. Now you need to see here how radical this is because Boaz is rejecting the culture's value system regarding women by highly valuing Ruth, not for her beauty, not for anything that she can bring to the marriage, or for her ability to produce a son. He is praising her for her character and her radical sacrificial love for Naomi. Look at it, verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You're showing even more family loyalty, Pesed, now than you did before. And on top of that, you've not gone after a younger man, whether he's rich or poor. Remember, Boaz is probably 20 years older than Ruth. Verse 11, now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I'll do what is necessary for everybody in town knows that you're a virtuous woman. Verse 12, here it is, the big but. But, it's, it's always like that, isn't it? It's like everything's going along so good, and it's like, but, while it's true I'm one of your family redeemers, there's another man who's more closely related to you than I am, so stay here to, uh, through the night, and in the morning I'll go talk to him. Now listen to this. Listen to what Boaz says. He says, if he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here till morning. So she lay down at Boaz's feet until the morning. Now you think either one of them are sleeping? No. No way. He's wondering if he's just given up the greatest opportunity he's ever going to have in life to get married again and marry someone as incredible as Ruth. And Ruth, she's wondering who she's going to end up with. Verse 14. Ruth got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. And Boaz said, nobody can know that you were here. A woman here was at the threshing floor. And Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. And he measured out six scoops. Bad translation. He measured out at least 60 pounds of barley, placed it in her cloak, and placed it on her back. Now, I'm, I'm wondering here, like, why didn't he just give her a nose ring? You know, like something little, like with a little diamond in it or something. I, I, I mean, like, 
60, I'm on the, I'm on the, on the, on the low end here because most commentators say 70 to 80 pounds. So he gives her like the 60 pounds of barley, puts it on her back. Verse 16, when Ruth, this CrossFit woman, <laughs> she got 30 pounds the first time and this is double the portion she had going back. Now, this is a woman, I mean, we could, Ruth could write an exercise guide. Because, I mean, it's like she's always bending over, so you want to do bend, you know, you want to do that exercise. She's walking all day long, so that's a great exercise. You know, she's got something on her back, you know, that she's carrying. This is a good exercise program, and she's fit. So she goes back to her mother-in-law, and Naomi said, hey, what happened, my daughter? Are you Mrs. Boaz? And Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her, and, and she, said, she said, look, he gave me 60 pounds of barley. In other words, so you would know his intentions are clear. And he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And so for the second time, Naomi is completely gobsmacked. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happened. The man will not rest until he settled the matter today. Now, if, this, if you were watching this on Netflix, would you immediately click to episode four? I mean, I mean, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Now, although no one knew it at the time, what's about to happen at the city gates the next morning would become one of the greatest moments in the history of the little town of Bethlehem. So stay tuned for next week, episode four. So what do we learn from this part, this part of the story? Because this is an instructional writing like Romans or Philippians or Galatians. I mean, this is a 100% story. And the question is, what is the author doing with this episode of the story? He's crafted it to stop right here, and it leaves us hanging. What does he want us to see in this part of the story? Again, for sure, he's crafted the whole story in such a way that he leaves us hanging, he leaves this tension in the air, and he leaves us with questions like, what's gonna happen? I mean, what will happen if the closer kinsman redeemer takes Ruth as his wife? What's gonna happen to Boaz if, if he loses Ruth? What will, happen to, to, uh, uh, what will happen if Ruth ends up with some guy she doesn't even know? I, I, I mean, she wants Boaz, like how is this all gonna work itself out? And it's amazing to me, absolutely amazing that Boaz and Ruth want to do what is right, not what felt, not what they felt was right. Now, obviously, Ruth wants to be married to Boaz, not some guy she's ever, never met. And obviously, Boaz wants to marry Ruth. He's completely taken with her, but there's an obstacle in the path, and now they both have to wait to see what's going to happen. I mean, isn't this the way life is? Everything's going along like you hoped, Doors open, good things are happening, good, good things on the horizon, light at the end of the tunnel, then you find out that the light is a train. And great, now, now, now you have to wait. And as far as you can see, to wait and do the right thing may, be, may mean that you lose what you were hoping for. Ugh, hate that. Like sometimes you just wanna push ahead, don't you? I mean, sometimes you want to say to God, hey, look, I'll just take it from here, okay? I mean, sometimes it's a lot easier to just go for it. Like, m m maybe if you say this just this way, or maybe if you do that like this, maybe 
you can make it happen all by yourself. It's just easier to do it that way. But easier doesn't mean better. Easier may mean that you're refusing to trust God with the outcome. And trusting God with the outcome can be really hard, especially when you have your heart set on a certain outcome. I believe one of the things that the author wants us to see here at this tension point at the end of episode three is this, that Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi are all exercising uncompromising faith. They're all exercising uncompromising faith. Okay, so what does uncompromising faith look like? Well, two things at least. First, uncompromising faith is seen in Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi's integrity. It's seen It's put on display in their integrity. They will not compromise their integrity to try to make something happen in order to get what they want to happen to happen. Let me say that one more time. They will not compromise their integrity by trying to make something happen in order to get what they want to happen to happen. Now, integrity is one of our core values here at Fellowship uh, Greenville, living in integrity, and we did a series last summer on our core values, and uh, there's a message there on living integrity. But basically, integrity is doing what's right even if it costs you. Doing what's right even if it costs you. And Ruth puts, Na- here, for Ruth, Ruth puts Naomi's plan on the chopping block by going and doing what she did by asking Boaz not just to marry her, that was Naomi's plan, and there was not, it wasn't anything necessarily wrong with Naomi's plan. But Ruth laid everything on the line by asking Boaz to marry her with strings attached. He, she's asking him to step into the legal matter of acting as their goel, their kinsman redeemer. Ruth wanted to do what was right by law, totally right, squeaky clean right, right even if it cost her. She was not about to cut corners. Boaz most definitely wanted to marry Ruth, and I mean right now. But there was someone else who had first right of refusal, and Boaz would not cut corners. He would not compromise integrity. He would not, make, he would not try to make something happen that God might not want to happen, and so he acted in integrity, trusting God with whatever outcome God had in mind. And Naomi is not going to play manipulating matchmaker here. She tells Ruth to be patient, and to wait and see what happens. Boaz and Ruth and Naomi are all exercising uncompromising faith in the integrity they put on display. You see this? So first of all, uncompromising faith requires you to act in integrity. When you're in a situation like this, when you, uh, you come to a place where you have to wait Now, secondly, uncompromising faith is seen in their willingness to wait for whatever. Uncompromising faith is seen in their willingness to wait for whatever. Uncompromising faith means cultivating a willingness, cultivating a willingness for whatever, resting in whatever God chooses to do or not do, and that can be hard, really hard, because it usually means sleepless nights, being tormented by what-ifs, it means, it means worry and stress and anxiety and frustration, especially when the obstacle in your path is another person who seems to be blocking the way. 
willingness to wait for whatever. Boaz, verse 14, he says, um, he says, Ruth, wait till morning. I'll talk to the man who has the right to take you as his wife. If he is willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. You see that? If he's willing to redeem you, good. Let him marry you. Can you say that? Can you say, if what I, God, if what I want to happen doesn't happen, good. So be it. You're in control. Can you say, God, if you don't answer my prayer the way that I'm praying, the way that I'm hoping, good, then, then what I'm praying for must not be your highest good for me. You see, Boaz says, if he's willing to redeem you, good. Now, think about, do you think Boaz wants that to happen? Like for Ruth to get married off to some other, of course not. He makes his intention crystal clear. His desire is crystal clear. He says, if he's not willing, then hand to God. I'm telling you, I'll redeem you for myself. So you think he's feeling stress here? Absolutely. But he's a godly man. He's a man of integrity, and he's going to do the right thing even if it costs him what he wants most. He is resting, or trying to rest, in whatever, in whatever God has planned, in whatever God knows is his and Ruth's and Naomi's highest good. And what about Naomi? One more time, verse 18, Naomi says, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. Be patient until we hear what happens. Be patient about whatever happens. Seeing this? You see, to trust God with all of this, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi have to rest in God's whatever. In God's whatever. I hear you, I hear you. You say, but, but Charlie, what if whatever means I miss what God has for me? Can't happen. Can't happen. Know why? Say it out loud, nothing just happens. Do you think that God didn't know about this closer relative? You know, like God's up there, you know, and he's looking down, he's watching the story play itself out, and then Boaz brings up, and God's like, oh my goodness, how could this happen? Like, where did this guy come from? I didn't know about this. Of course not. God's in complete control. He's directing and ordering their steps, just like he directs and orders your steps. You see, cultivating a willingness to wait on God's whatever requires full confidence that God's ways are always right and his outcomes are always best. Always best. You can pray for whatever you want, but if it's not happening, then you rest in whatever God is doing, even when you can't see it. Plus the fact, and I mentioned this in passing last week, but it fits really well right here. If you're in God's will today, you can't miss his will tomorrow. In other words, if you're doing what you know that God wants you to do today, you're acting in integrity, you're putting his word into application in your life, you're seeking the guidance of his spirit in your life, if you're in his will today, you will not miss it tomorrow. But if you step outside of what you know to be God's will today, if you won't trust God with that obstacle in your path, if you won't trust God with 
a different outcome than you got your heart set on. If you try to maneuver and manipulate things to get your way, then you can't be sure that what you end up getting is God's best for you. You can't be sure. Now, can God work in that? Yep, he can take the consequences of the mess you made and he can work in those consequences, but why do that? Mark it down, one of the most difficult lessons we have to learn as followers of Jesus is to wait on God to work out the next step. One of the most difficult lessons is to wait on God to work out the next step. So how do we learn that lesson? We have to cultivate a willingness for whatever. We have to cultivate a willingness for whatever. Well, how do you do that? You need to grab hold of truth. Truth. Like, like, like when you can't see God at work, it doesn't mean he's not working. It just means you can't see him working, like we talked about last week. Uh, truth, like while I'm waiting, I know God is working. Truth, like God orchestrates the ordinary. Truth, like nothing just happens. <laughs> These truths you preach to yourself when things aren't going. These are the truths you preach to yourself when things aren't going uh, the way that you had hoped and when you're forced to wait. You have to have foundational beliefs, foundational theological beliefs, core beliefs that anchor you to trust God with whatever outcome he has in mind for you. And here are what I call my core beliefs. Like I've shared these before, but I'm gonna share them again. Um, I developed these years ago when I was a young pastor during a time when I felt stuck, during a time when I wanted things to happen that weren't, were not happening, and it felt like I was waiting on hold forever, during a time when there were obstacles in my path that I could not remove, and those obstacles were creating stress and anxiety and frustration in my life, and so I, I started to think, nope, nothing just happens. What, is, what do I need to hold on to? What about God is solid enough to take me through this time? And I wrote them down and I put them on paper and I can't tell you how many times I've got them on little cards scattered everywhere. I go back to them all the time and have, have done that 20, last 25 years of my ministry. Here are my core beliefs. Number one, God is all wise. In other words, what God has allowed to come into my life has purpose and meaning. Now, I might not understand what God is doing, but he knows what he's doing, right? God is all wise. God is all powerful. God is in control of all things. Nothing happens to me that he hasn't allowed. He's all powerful. God is all loving. What he has allowed is for my ultimate good. Everything that comes into my life is for my ultimate good. It is his highest expression of love to me. I, can't, I may not be able to see it, but that's, I know this to be true about God. Therefore, I can trust him. And God is all satisfying. I have what God wants me to have for my present growth and enjoyment. If I don't have something I want or think I need, it's because in reality, I don't need it or my all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God would provide it. He is enough. He is sufficient. You gotta, you, I, what are your core beliefs? You, these are good ones, take them as yours. But you gotta have them or you'll be blown all over the place by the winds of circumstances. You gotta have them 
or, or, or when you end up in God's waiting room, you'll be waiting with the worry of what ifs, and that'll torment you and make you miserable. You gotta have them and you gotta preach them to yourself or you'll have a hard time coming to grips with God not always giving you what you want when you want it. And the more you preach truth like this to yourself, the more freedom you have and the more calm you experience, the more peace and rest you have deep down in your soul. I'm not saying it makes the situation easier. I'm saying it makes your heart more peaceful ultimately. And nowhere do you find these truths more evident in Scripture than in the life and death of Jesus. Jesus had uncompromising faith in his heavenly Father, and he knew that his all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, all-satisfying heavenly Father was not going to ask him to do something that was not best and ultimately for his good and your good and my good. That's why Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. Or he could have said, not my desired outcome, but your desired outcome, O oh God. He's saying, if, if the cross is your will for me, good. If the cross is your plan for me to redeem people and bring them into your family, good then I'll be the Goel. I'll be the family redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. And Jesus being anchored in uncompromising faith, he voluntarily went to the cross. He died on that cross for your sins and my sins so that we could know God in the way that he knew God. So that we could know this not my will but thy will peace that he was able to come to because he saw his heavenly father and he knew his heavenly father to be all wise, all powerful, all loving, and all sufficient. He died on that cross so we could be in God's family line and that we would one day inherit everything that belongs to Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, like a simple story like this that carries so much weight and impact. A story like this that really has the potential to change our lives, to change how we go through problems, to change how we view circumstances, to change how we wait to change our hearts so that our hearts become more in line with your heart. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take this story and take the things we've heard today, take the core beliefs we just looked at and drive them so deep within us. We never doubt in your wisdom and we never doubt your power and we never doubt your love and we never doubt that you are sufficient and that you are always enough. Make it so for your greater glory and our highest good. In Jesus' name, amen.